and welcome back to the Australian Histories Podcast. Today we're going to begin a short series from the early colonial period. William Bly might be most well known as the captain of Mutiny on the Bounty fame, but despite that embarrassing stain on his naval resume, Bly managed to continue advancing in his navy career and was later to be tasked with governing the colony of New South Wales. But it seems his days of attracting mutinous behaviour were not over. Bly would find himself again at the mercy of military men who felt they could do a better job. At least this time he would have more to eat as he made his way back to England. So we'll talk in this series about the New South Wales Corps, otherwise known as the Rum Corps, about the lead-up to Bly's governorship and his time at the helm of the good ship New South Wales and then the insurrection that we sometimes call the Rum Rebellion. Some of us may have learnt a little about Bly in school and about the Rum Rebellion, but there really was a lot going on in the colony in those early days that played into this saga. A little like the Kelly story retold in the early episodes, there might be a couple of opposing camps in considering the actions of the major players in the Rum Rebellion, such as Bly, MacArthur and the New South Wales Corps. Some might think that Bly was simply an incorrigible, bullying autocrat with no understanding of the fledgling colony or its people, using heavy-handed and insensitive tactics to govern. Others believe Bly was following the orders he was given by the Home Office in England, and that the basic cause of the difficulties he encountered rested squarely with the corruption and desire for total power within the past and current officers of the New South Wales Corps. One previous officer, particularly tied to the Rum Rebellion, was the rather arrogant and vexatious John MacArthur. After resigning from the Corps, he remained a big cheese in the New South Wales Cracker Factory. This was the very same John MacArthur who was fated with being the heroic founder of the lucrative wool industry in Australia. Though he was never the only one in the colony working on that, so it's worth taking a closer look at him, too. I think we'll likely find there were equal parts villain and charismatic charmer in both men. But like the Kellys, again, the truth and blame for the uprising probably sits somewhere between them, and with a share of that blame needing to be slated home to the British government in England as well. So let's recount the story with a bit more detail and see what you think of all the players at the end of the series. First, just quickly, I'll remind you that I no longer operate a Patreon account and have removed those links from my web pages. Because I will be less reliable in my publishing schedule for a while, I no longer feel comfortable about taking contributions monthly. Stephen O and Lucas DJ signed up just prior to this decision being announced, so I thank you both for your willingness to support the show, even though I'm now closing down the Patreon account. And my thanks also goes to all my previous contributors. And I send a grateful thanks also to Jarrah W and David O, who recently sent donations via the one-off donation link on the webpage, and Steve H, who has done that again this year after doing so in 2020. Thanks, Steve. I'm so glad you're still enjoying the work. All right, let's begin our look at Bly and the Rum Rebellion. We know that Australia's original penal colony was established in New South Wales in 1788, with Admiral Arthur Phillip governing, intended as an isolated open-air prison where the dregs of society could be sent out of sight and largely out of mind. Phillip had instructions to make the settlement as self-sufficient as possible, as quickly as possible. Not only did the British want to be shot of these convicts, they didn't want to be burdened with funding them for any longer than they had to either. So Philip was to set up farms and gardens in the new land, a land that Joseph Banks had praised as abundant and full of potential. But of course, while tools, seeds and stock were sent with the convicts on the first fleet, no persons with the appropriate farming skills and experience accompanied them. The convicts sent were largely urban, in poor physical state, 
often uncooperative as labourers, and Banks had been entirely wrong about the productivity potential around the chosen Botany Bay settlement site. Even though Arthur had relocated immediately to the better location at Port Jackson, where there was at least a good water supply, the soil in the region was still thin, poor and unsuitable for successful European agriculture at any useful scale, and the first fleet stock mostly failed to thrive, leaving the newcomers quite vulnerable. Philip complained, quote, Here, nature is reversed. If not so, she is very nearly worn out. Unquote. Indeed, the new colony came very close to starvation and failure in the first couple of years before better land was identified around present-day Parramatta. Philip's original instructions also included quote, establishing friendly relations with the natives, unquote, though he never managed to successfully achieve this goal, as the British plans to settle and farm would interfere chronically and fatally with connection to country for many Eora, Darug, Karingai and other cultural groups who were first to confront the British expansion. The indigenous peoples of New South Wales were supposed to be embraced and treated as British citizens, but clearly their pre-colonial way of life was incompatible with the land-owning and enclosing culture of the British as the colony grew. As a penal settlement, the governor was wholly in charge, a warden of sorts, with his civilian and military officers enforcing the rules and controlling the convicts. The structure devised by the British, in setting up the outpost, made no arrangement for any advisory body to work with the governor or a parliament of any sort to represent the people, just written instructions to guide carrying out the will of the British from a distance. In the beginning, as an open-air jail, there were only the convicts and their jailers to consider, along with dealing with the original inhabitants, of course. But complications increased in a very short time. The shape of the settlement as simply a prison would begin changing within a decade, and getting the Home Office in England to understand the complexities and the additional requirements needed to manage them was an exceptionally difficult task. Under the purview of the British Secretary of State, the problems of governing the new penal colony seemed only of marginal interest in England, really, and the time delay in communications added a degree of difficulty too, which meant that the early New South Wales governors had to operate for long stretches with complete autonomous authority. Assumptions had to be made about how to achieve what the British government wanted, given the big-picture instructions, and to create an environment that would do the most good for the colony. In setting up the remote prison in New South Wales, Philip was charged with, quote, maintaining good order amongst the prisoners, unquote, and creating regulation and even laws based on the British legal custom that would allow him to manage the colony as issues arose, and to direct the military court to undertake the policing tasks he required. He was to set up a civil administration and a criminal court, but Philip was perpetually hamstrung by the lack of forward planning from the Home Office in not sending out suitable persons to assist in creating these essential services. All the early governors often had to rely on less than appropriate candidates to fill the formal offices, and this resulted in much dysfunction as the outpost evolved. While the governors regularly wrote with pleas for reforms and appropriate assistance, the letters were often downplayed, responses delayed or completely ignored by the Secretary of State's office in England. For decades, the governors had to largely manage with the marginal support they could muster from a tiny collection of competent men in New South Wales, including some emancipated convicts as the time went on. Convicts would eventually serve their time, but most would never return to England, creating a growing free emancipist population around Port Jackson. Land had to be made available so those people could make a living for themselves, but the fledgling society was not always providing the best conditions for development and success, despite the governor's best efforts. It seemed once the convicts were out the door and on their way there was a good dose of neglect and disinterest in the remote colony. Being but a prison, its early value to the British might be indicated by the type of men they sent out to administer and police it. Where other new colonial outposts might be governed by the aristocracy, the sons of nobility representing the empire, rather ordinary naval men were sent to govern New South Wales. Men who were used to commanding a crew, operating somewhat autonomously for long periods of time, interpreting orders given on departure, 
and used to firm discipline. The only toffs arriving in the early days were generally the black sheep of their families, the disgraced and fallen. But so desperate was the new colony to replicate the class structures at home, in order to maintain their familiar societal place in the pecking order, often even these fallen men were embraced in the fledgling community, and a number of very suspect and incompetent people were given crucial jobs, which in any other place would never have been considered. Naval men probably did seem the best suited for the role of warden in a remote outpost, in the beginning at least, but in an evolving society which soon included small farmers and traders, civilians, ex-convicts and convicts living in the community still serving their time, along with the men of the New South Wales Corps and their families, getting the most out of your charges in such a trying and isolated location would also require excellent social skills. The governor would need the ability to work with difficult men and bring out their best qualities, to foster cooperation. And it was here, perhaps, that the early governors might have been less competent than was ideal. Though again, I think we also have to look at the quality of men they had to work with. The Marine Corps military unit had accompanied the First Fleet to Australia for security, but in 1789, a permanent new regiment, the New South Wales Corps, was successfully recruited in England to relieve the Marines. Formed to support and protect the developing outpost, they were to provide security and muscle, guarding the convicts and carrying out the requirements of the governor. They began arriving on the Second Fleet in 1790. Led by Major Francis Gross, the regiment consisted of three companies numbering about 300 men to begin with. However, despite the Corps being recruited for this very role in a penal colony, there was an element of resentment within the garrison at the lowly tasks they had to undertake, minding the lowest of the low in an isolated, uncivilised and unfamiliar post. And the Army Corps was not pleased to be taking their orders from such governors, naval men, who were used to the strict hierarchies and discipline of a navy culture. The New South Wales Corps were, in fact, a bit feral, and many were regularly suspended from duty for misdemeanours of one sort or another, some having to be arrested by their own corps comrades for their bad behaviour. So for the governor, getting his bidding done was always a bit of a struggle, and disciplining those in the garrison was always a testy affair. Specifically set up to address the needs in New South Wales, recruiting to fill such a post was more difficult than you might imagine. Recruiters were offering lucrative pay to bribe and coax the men into service at a penal settlement at the end of the earth, but the calibre of the men who signed up did not always match the desired standards. A good percentage had criminal records, or signed on in order to escape a jail term, as high as 25% according to one source. So expecting these men to behave well for the good of the community and to yield cheerfully to the desires of the governor in a remote posting where they were close to being the top dogs in society themselves, might have been a bit of a stretch. But those who did take the bait and shipped out to Port Jackson soon found other ways to make a lucrative income in this open-air prison too. Now, the men of the New South Wales Corps were not unusual in wanting to make a quid on the side in the new colony. This kind of profiteering was common wherever British officers were sent to outposts of empire, India offering tremendous opportunities, for example. And to be fair, some postings were pretty dangerous, death and disease a real possibility, so there were looking to gather every quick buck available. Unfortunately, such activities are not always in the best interests of a developing society, so the men of the corps were often at odds with the requirements of their calling, and the governors faced frequent disciplinary issues within the corps right from the start. So Philip, who was in fact brought out of retirement to take on the governor's role in New South Wales, led the First Fleet and the initial settlement, staying in Port Jackson for almost five years. He was in command for perhaps the hardest period, the duty there described as, quote, the severest he had ever experienced, unquote, and ruining his health doing battle with the elements, the convicts and the undisciplined New South Wales Corps. Philip immediately saw the weakness in the British plan for self-sufficiency, given all he had was unskilled and uncooperative convicts, and he lobbied from the beginning for the British government to send free settler farmers, tradespeople, and other useful contributors to also join the colony. 
though his suggestions were largely ignored at that time. He had already begun to modify the rather too-small-for-success land arrangements outlined in his instructions, granting more to those he felt could work it, and to have a better chance of successful agriculture, he provided some financial assistance to get farms up and running. By 1792, there was productive land being worked in the Parramatta area, helping to relieve the food supply issues, but there was a long way to go before they could reliably provide for themselves. Philip had done his duty as best he could, but it had worn him out. In December of 1792, his health was failing, and he needed to return to England even before a replacement was sent out. He would have to leave the fledgling colony in the hands of the commander of the New South Wales Corps. Major Francis Gross became acting governor and Lieutenant William Patterson the administrator during the almost three years that the colony was left without a governor. But leaving the corps in charge was perhaps akin to leaving the henhouse in the care of the foxes. The convict settlement established at Port Jackson was by then developing its own functioning society around it, with farming and trade underway, freedmen and retired officials making their own living. There was now good money to be made in the colony. The New South Wales Corps was suddenly in the box seat to take advantage of such possibilities. Indeed, as it turned out, they had enough time in charge to create an environment that would be to their great advantage. Gross quickly established military rule after Philip departed, abandoning a great many of Philip's plans and principles, instead focusing on securing the Corps' authority and cultivating the political power of its officers. Abolishing the civilian courts and transferring that authority to his officers, there was now no longer anywhere a person aggrieved by a member of the corps could go for redress. Where Philip had previously instigated a policy of equal rations for all in difficult times, in 1793, when rationing was again necessary after a poor harvest, only the convict rations were cut back. The men of the corps were unaffected. It was clear that they were becoming the all-powerful elite in New South Wales. Without permission from England, Gross made large land grants to his officers and provided them with free government-fed and clothed convict labourers and house staff, justifying the self-serving action by claiming it would ensure increased food production in the colony. Certainly the income from such ventures would be attractive, and many officers became wealthy, providing grain and supplies to the government stores at lucrative prices. The officers were in control of all aspects of the transactions, from the beginning to the end of the supply chain. Another quirk of the early colonial setup was that the penal colony required no currency. Initially set up only as a prison, there was no need. Convicts, guards and the administrative personnel were all on the government's payroll and were provided with their required supplies. But with the growth in population and with the growth in farming, agriculture and building etc., additional goods were in high demand and needed to be paid for. So traders such as Robert Campbell arranged for desired goods to be sent from India to Port Jackson, for example, to be offered for sale. Now, just as an aside, we have encountered this Robert Campbell before. If you recall from episode 43, Shipwreck and First Contact, it was Robert Campbell and his brother, Calcutta merchants from Campbell, Clark & Co., who had sent the Sydney Cove on spec, loaded with goods that the new colony might desire. We know that the Sydney Cove came to grief, and that after a gruelling trek through the East Coast bush, his brother, who had been on board, eventually made it back to Port Jackson and then Calcutta, having proved that Port Jackson could be a very profitable port for trading goods. Robert later emigrated and settled in Australia in 1798, building warehouses and a private wharf at Dawes Point, now the area where the southern end of Sydney Harbour Bridge meets land. Campbell prospered spectacularly, going on to own a great deal of prime land, including a large holding near present-day Canberra, which he named Duntroon. So he's another character from this period that we will need to mention again, in relation to his dealings with the New South Wales Corps, the Governors and the Rum Rebellion. Within the small colony, IOUs and promissory notes worked for many goods traded internally, 
Between the inhabitants, bartering in goods and produce was a common way to pay, and payment with spirits became common, including for payment of wages. The spirit most commonly used for these transactions was rum. Indeed, it was the officers of the corps in particular that had a strong hold on the rum trade, and its use as a pseudo-currency was widespread, hence their colloquial name, the Rum Corps. Drunkenness and associated harms were also predictably rife. If you were only being paid in liquor, it was hard to get ahead, to save, to purchase the goods required to run your business or farm successfully, unless you were very disciplined. As trade increased and more merchant vessels arrived with goods to sell, the men of the corps developed another dominating venture. External traders generally preferred to be paid in sterling, in hard currency, and the men of the rum corps were pretty much the only ones in the colony being paid in sterling, so they were in a very strong position when it came to purchasing imported goods. Despite the obvious conflict of interest, with their role as governors and police to the community, and the corps having the regulation of vessels arriving and leaving, officers pooled their funds in order to purchase all of the goods from an incoming merchant ship. Good profits could then be made from on-selling at a premium to the Port Jackson populace. It's so interesting, isn't it, that flagrant corruption? They sent out boatloads of poor people who'd been making a meagre living from stealing hangies to sell or silverware off the rich man's table. These convicts were thought to be the absolute immoral dregs of society, and yet the biggest self-serving rogues in the penal colony were the jailers themselves. They acted to enrich and protect themselves and their friends at the expense of policing to bring about a fair and honest society for all. It must have been impossible at this time to think that a decent society might come out of such a start. The power and authority of the Rum Corps was unchecked at a local level, and the fledgling community around the convict economy was struggling along under the weight of such corruption, if they were not directly involved in it themselves. For the Rum Corps, eventually returning the government reins to the new governor, and yielding to any new rules he might impose, would prove to be highly problematic where their interests were affected in the future the lining of their own pockets was a stronger motivation than any sense of civic or military duty. The difficulty and the dysfunction continued for years. When Governor Hunter arrived at Sydney Cove in September of 1795, the population there was 3,211 persons, of whom 59% were serving convicts. So the society was pretty small, but somewhat divided between the layers of success, influence, power and servitude. There were now some big men in the colony, used to running the show themselves and making a very good income doing so. After nearly three years with the Corps in sole charge, Hunter had a tremendous task to wrest control back from them. Indeed, it took him a while to figure out just whose advice to listen to, on the ground, and to understand just what liberties were being taken. The senior men in the corps had used their time in charge to foster influential relationships with important people back in England, people who could support them and their requirements despite any official actions the governor was to undertake. The Duke of Portland, for example, as one of the secretaries of state, had been in private correspondence with MacArthur and was being fed his rather subjective view of the colony and of Hunter's actions. For Hunter, instigating his colonial instructions would have been difficult enough even if the colony had been blessed with a loyal and competent public service and a dutiful and obedient militia. But when Hunter began making changes that upset the corps' existing arrangements, they took their arguments straight to their English friends in high places, and Hunter's job was further complicated by the erratic advice and communications that came in response. Being the man on the spot, with better knowledge and understanding of the constraints than those in the Home Office in England, Hunter did ignore or disobey some of the instructions he'd been given, instead implementing regulation that was more pragmatic given the local circumstances. But this only provided ammunition to his detractors. There were conflicting complaints sent to England from both Governor Hunter and the corps officials and their supporters, 
both reporting bad behaviour and breaches in protocol, both blaming the other as corrupt and untenable to work with. Anonymous letters were sent, purporting to be from concerned New South Wales residents, charging Hunter with the very abuses he was battling the court to prevent. Hunter was substantially undermined by this behaviour, and despite his great objections, he was eventually recalled, handing over the governing role to Lieutenant Governor King and departing for England the end of September 1800. On the upside, while in charge themselves and under Hunter, many corps officers had managed to create productive and successful farms on the land that they'd been given, adding to the food security in New South Wales. But in continuing to use large numbers of convicts still funded by the government, the costs to the Crown were not reduced, and the new Governor, King, was to address that. The monopoly trading had to be controlled, as did the reliance on rum as a strong barter currency and a corrupter of society. All of these would materially reduce the spectacular profits being made by the men of the Corps and their business associates. So King was no more welcome than Hunter. Hunter did not have the requisite skills to lead the colony in change and was not able to turn things around. When King took charge, he felt a complete new broom was required and had ambitious ideas. His Australian Dictionary of Biography entry records him acknowledging, quote, nothing less than a total change in the system of administration was necessary and that discontent will be general when this took place. His task would be laborious and highly discouraging, but he would not be at all intimidated, unquote. It puzzles me as to why the whole disruptive New South Wales Corps was not recalled and a fresh, more disciplined military contingent sent out instead. But perhaps that was an indicator of the lack of real interest in good governance in the new colony. Instead, the Secretary of State's office in England left King with limited support to again do battle with those powerful men of the Rum Corps on the government's behalf. King focused first on trying to curtail the illicit trade in liquor, notably rum, by bringing in tighter controls and a reduction in importation, with a new set of port and price regulations, which did reduce the alcohol imports by around a third. Of course, local illicit stills remained, but he also began construction of a brewery to offer an alternative to the strong spirits. To ease the supply monopolies and high costs of imported goods, he lobbied for and set up a public warehouse, supplying the most needed goods required in the colony, which could be purchased at a less exorbitant price. Along with increased trade arrivals, the ability of the colonists to purchase what was needed without drowning in debt boosted a healthier economy. While he tried to control wages, prices and interest rates and the like, it was still a colony with immense demand and he was less successful there. He also tried to introduce official printed promissory notes to reduce forgeries and to provide a better mechanism for local currency alternative, but again this was a less successful solution than he'd hoped. The government-funded convict labours were then limited to just two per farm, which must have severely impacted on the profitability of the officers' operations, and probably fuelled an increase in the cost of private labour. Those recalled convicts were once again employed on government-directed public works and the enlarged government farms to increase their productivity. Though in time, the preferred model was to outsource again, expanding land grants for private agriculture, convict labour used would become a cost to the private agriculturalists. And this arrangement was deemed successful, with, quote, only 56 out of 646 farmers on the stores in 1806. So that's less than one-sixth compared to more than a quarter in 1800, just six years prior. So there was plenty going on that might have continued to needle the core officers, the simmering power struggle persisted under King, though perhaps he had some better management tactics than Hunter, at least. Certainly he was clearer in his requirements and requests for support from England. But we can see how the Rum Corps' self-indulgent behaviour and disrespect for the Governor's authority could make imposing order and enforcing unpopular regulations difficult. You might look at it more like a society being policed by the military mafia than by a dutiful regiment of disciplined military men. 
The corps officers had become the new elite while the governor was absent, and they didn't care to return easily to their conventional roles, under Hunter or King. By the turn of the century, just over a decade since the arrival of the British convicts to the dedicated penal settlement at Port Jackson, the number of free persons was then around 51%, being free arrivals, time-served convicts, officials retired or those native-born in the colony. For the first time, the convicts were outnumbered, and the society was beginning to look quite different from the open-air prison of the late 1780s. It was important to get the governance right. Natural disasters aside, the young colony was progressing very well by the King years. But the society consisted of several factions, with somewhat different interests and competing needs. There was a hierarchy of class, though unlike England's, perhaps. Some at the top were successful merchants, or even emancipated convicts, whose money and success elevated them to a position they could never have imagined in the bigger pond of the old country. But this in itself caused friction in the community. Reforming governance in such a complex environment and keeping everyone happy would prove to be a massive undertaking for King. He seemed to have been more competent at getting the unpopular things underway, but he managed to score some pretty good additional benefits for himself during this time too. As I mentioned earlier, it was perhaps expected that some in charge, like this, would take some financial benefit for their hardships, and on the scale of things, he was reasonably modest in his exploitation, granting himself prime land, stock and the like. But there was plenty of hypocrisy that the New South Wales Corps could call out too. King was also described as seriously hot-tempered. This is an interesting reflection, particularly if we compare him with Bly. But I wonder if the Navy culture and the expectation of immediate obedience and strong discipline didn't manifest in the angry frustration these men felt in their New South Wales posting where discipline was lax. Temper issues aside, there would be a number of antagonists that just kept on with their obstruction, John MacArthur and George Johnson being just two of them. Johnston's biography entry indicates he was a career army man who stayed on from the Marines as the New South Wales Corps relieved them. He worked as Philip's adjunct of orders, as Hunter's aide-de-camp, and acted as commanding officer for the Corps when theirs was absent. But he was also described as quarrelsome, and was heavily involved in the illegal trading controlled by the Corps officers, even after Hunter had outlawed it. Hunter had him arrested and sent back to England to stand trial in 1800, but in a familiar outcome when the New South Wales governor sent corrupt officers back for disciplinary action, Johnson was returned to Sydney Cove the following year, no trial ever having taken place. It's pretty difficult to make your charges accept your authority when it's so completely disrespected by your own upper management. But these officers had a lot of heavy hitters in England working on their behalf. Johnston afterwards made a name for himself in suppressing the uprising by Irish convicts in the colony at Vinegar Hill in 1804, so at least he was fulfilling that part of his duty to the Crown. He would, though, continue in his clashes with the governors over many matters. John MacArthur was another soldier who didn't care to be told what to do by the New South Wales governors. He was busy building a substantial and lucrative empire in the new colony, from the early leg-up that the Corps had taken advantage of while in control, and he had also fostered some very important and influential supporters back in England. He was clearly a man who had great charisma and could fashion strong and mutually beneficial relationships when it was in his interest, and could position himself as a strong leader of men. But he also displayed great arrogance, a fierce stubbornness, and a propensity to anger quickly when arrangements were not to his liking. So he would also end up being sent back to England for disciplinary action during these years. The son of a mercer, a dealer in textile fabrics, he took a commission as a 15-year-old, expecting to fight in the American War. But it was all over before he got there, and he spent the next several years at home in England, waiting for the next big thing. After a short spell stationed at Gibraltar, he transferred to the New South Wales Corps, wisely seeing an opportunity for early advancement in the Antipodes. 
Arriving in June of 1790, his argumentative personality was on display before they even made landfall. His biography entry records that he fought a duel with the ship's master on board, and he continued his hostility with the master's replacement. They had to resolve the antagonism by transferring him and his family to another ship on the fleet en route. He had married Elizabeth in 1788 and travelled with her and their baby son, Edward. He also suffered a serious illness en route, which no one expected him to survive. But survive he did, though it was recorded that he had, quote, recurring symptoms throughout his life, unquote. Though his initial plans might have been to try and rise through the ranks as quickly as possible and return to England, he soon saw that greater wealth and advancement might be gained from putting down roots in the new colony. Despite his argumentative tendencies, he did, however, manage good relations with many who were able to provide his advancement in the Corps, and he held various posts, including regimental paymaster, inspector of public works, and he undertook some provisioning arrangements, all roles which gave him control of precious colonial resources and elevated his standing. His land grant from Gross, in Rose Hill, now Parramatta, in January of 1793, consisted of 100 acres, that's 40 hectares, of, quote, some of the best ground that has been discovered, unquote. With his free convict labour, he immediately cleared and cultivated 50 acres and established Elizabeth Farm, which he continued to expand with further grants the following year as its productivity rose. The Elizabeth Farm homestead remains at that site today, the development of modern Parramatta all around it now, and is one of the oldest homes standing in Australia. I'll place a link to the website. I've not had the pleasure of a visit to the immersive living house museum yet, but I'd be very interested in doing so when that becomes possible. In May of 1795, he had reached the rank of captain, but he was a perpetually difficult character, making important friends, but also known for causing fights and making enemies within the corps and in the general community. Indeed, quoted on the Sydney Living Museum site for Elizabeth Farm is a comment by one of MacArthur's friends, Robert Scott, describing him as, quote, a man of the most violent passions, his friendship strong and his hatred invincible, unquote. When Hunter arrived in September of 1795 to reclaim governorship from the Corps commander, MacArthur at first made himself very useful in his role of Inspector of Public Works, but by February they had entirely fallen out and he resigned his inspector's position. With an eye to his future in the colony, he imported some sheep from South Africa and began a breeding program, which would later bring him great success. Meanwhile, he continued a destabilising campaign to discredit Hunter, both in the colony and via his influential correspondence in England, and that undermining did contribute to Hunter's recall to London. In September of 1801, soon after King assumed governorship, he appointed William Patterson, commander of the corps, as his lieutenant governor. Now, there seemed pretty much constant bickering between the officers, and there was always some complaint, report, duel, or some other drama going on. King must have felt like the exhausted parent of aggressive tantrum throwing toddlers most of the time. But then one series of grievances spiralled suddenly into a very serious incident. MacArthur had been doing his thing and writing strong letters of various complaint to King, and when King responded, perhaps not in the most diplomatic manner, this then gave MacArthur written ammunition for further complaint against King himself. He gave copies of King's responses to Patterson and requested that he make an official complaint about King to England on his behalf. Patterson wrote up the complaints and sent them, but then regretted doing so. He told King what he'd done and apologised profusely, which was helpful in forging a better working relationship between them both, but which infuriated MacArthur. Probably feeling threatened, in a rather vindictive move, MacArthur sent King a copy of the report that Patterson had written for him to fret over. 
and he also made public some personal letters between his wife and Mrs. Patterson, which contained criticisms of King. Now Patterson was furious at the indignity of it all, and he challenged MacArthur to a duel. Now duels have an agreed set of rules that gentlemen should follow, even at the height of passion, and such a duel should never have proceeded. Davis notes that, quote, A soldier fighting a duel with his commanding officer would have to be insubordination of the highest kind, unquote. MacArthur should never have accepted the challenge, and he most certainly should not have fired at his commander. On the day, MacArthur won the toss to fire first, and, standing twelve paces apart, he fired and hit Patterson in the right shoulder. Patterson was unable to fire back, and MacArthur left, stating he would be ready for Patterson's return at any time. <laughs> no remorse and no ground given. Patterson was quite badly injured and took a long time to recover. Fortunately, the duel never resumed. MacArthur had been quite the thorn in the side of Hunter, but now he had done the unforgivable. King, knowing he was unlikely to have a fair trial amongst his peers in New South Wales, sent him to England for a court-martial. Knowing MacArthur would fight and argue even these straightforward charges, he sent three copies of the charges and evidence to the army prosecutors there via three separate ships. Of MacArthur, King wrote to one official, quote, His employment during the eleven years he has been here has been that of making a large fortune, helping his brother officers to make small ones, mostly at the public expense, and sowing discord and strife. Experience has convinced every man in this colony that there are no resources which art, cunning, impudence and a pair of basilic eyes can afford that he does not put into practice to obtain any point he undertakes. Many and many instances of his diabolical spirit have shown itself before Governor Philip left the colony, and since, although in many instances he has been the master worker of the puppets that he has set in motion. Unquote. implying, of course, that he had influence and control over many others in the colony. Unbelievably, none of the copies that King sent reached England in time for the trial. Davis recorded one was lost in a shipwreck, obviously beyond the control of anyone. The second copy was sent in a locked dispatch box, which was found to be empty when it was opened in England. And we have to wonder, could it have been tampered with before it even left the governor's office? The third was sent with MacArthur with instructions to deliver it to the commander-in-chief of the British Army. Davis does not state the reason for the delay, but that copy did eventually make it to the commander-in-chief, but not until after the charges were dismissed for lack of evidence. So, I mean, what was MacArthur doing? It seems absolutely astounding, doesn't it? On such serious charges, wouldn't you simply delay the trial until the documentation you'd be expecting actually arrived? But apparently not. In July of 1805, MacArthur returned to Sydney in triumph. He had not been court-martialed. But this business was all too tedious. He had arranged to resign his commission. In his downtime in England, he'd schmoozed the important people where he could including trying to convince Banks of his sheep-breeding skills. King had already sent samples of colonial fleece to Banks to indicate the quality of the wool that could be produced in the colony, and Banks had taken some interest. But Brunton suggests that Banks was not convinced of MacArthur's capabilities and thought that any potential wool industry in New South Wales should be developed by an English company. <laughs> In fact, it's conceivable that Banks may have actively worked against MacArthur's plans, possibly aware of his difficult personality and the grief he'd been giving the governors. Certainly, MacArthur always felt that Banks had been instrumental in reducing the potential land-grant acreage he may have been able to obtain. But MacArthur had impressed the colonial secretary, Lord Camden, with the wool samples he'd brought with him, said to be, quote, of a very superior quality, equal to the best which comes from Spain, unquote, and convinced him that he could improve the wool even further, as he was intending to import merinos from the royal stud farm. 
He presented himself to others interested in the development of the wool trade as the colonial authority on sheep breeding in New South Wales and the most appropriate person to lead the developing industry in the colony. Despite Banks's continued scepticism, Camden was able to secure from the government a written order for King, granting MacArthur 5,000 acres, that's 2,024 hectares, of, quote, the best land in the colony for his sheep breeding, unquote with the promise of more if his breeding developments were successful. This was the largest land grant yet given at that time. So it was onward and seriously upward for MacArthur on his return from his potential court-martial and dressing down. So that was the response from the establishment in England. Yep, we're right behind you, Governor King. We'll support you in dealing with problems we've helped foster. Not. <laughs> Worse still, Davis writes that King was actually rebuked for bringing charges against MacArthur and was ordered not to do it again. What an absolute slap in the face for King. And no doubt this would have bolstered MacArthur's belief in his ability to do whatever he damn well wanted in the colony. He was to become more powerful than ever. His wife, Elizabeth, had managed Elizabeth's farm expertly in his absence and it was thriving. No longer tied to the military, he could focus exclusively on sheep breeding and the wool business, along with his other ventures, and consolidate his growing fortune. That massive land grant to MacArthur became known as Camden Park, of course, in recognition of the man who made it possible, and schoolchildren for generations would laud him as the founder of the Australian wool industry. In August of 1805, it was said that there were more than 20,000 sheep in the colony. <laughs> Though probably to his annoyance, they weren't all owned by him. It looks like Camden Park House is still in the MacArthur family hands, and their website offers some information on its history. They advertise an open house on specific dates, and private tours are possible, apparently. I'll place a link in my references. As they had done with Hunter... MacArthur and the Friends of the Corps had been working in the background to undermine King's standing back in England, particularly any time regulations would adversely impact their investments. MacArthur would continue to be a problem citizen in his civilian life in New South Wales, albeit a highly successful one. So, King had managed a good number of improvements during his term, but he had run out of steam and there was still a lot to be done. Into this difficult environment came the 51-year-old Governor William Bly in August of 1806. History shows that he may not have been the best man for this difficult task either, but could others have done much better under the circumstances? Was a showdown with the Rum Corps inevitable, given the personal dynamics of the men involved, and the failure of the Home Office to investigate and act on the many incidents or entrenched issues that had been reported? Bly was granted his commission, which was to be formally and publicly read on his taking control in New South Wales, and which contained the advice of handover from King to Bly. He would, from then on, have supreme power on behalf of the British government. The commission included the power to administer oaths of allegiance, to appoint justices of the peace and law officers, to pardon and reprieve, to levy armed forces and declare martial law, to erect fortifications exercise sovereign naval powers, try offences at sea, and control finances, land grants and commerce. His specific instructions began with the statement, quote, It is our royal will and pleasure that you do pursue such measures as are necessary for the peace and security of New South Wales, and for the preservation of the public stores and stock of every description, and that you do proceed without delay to the cultivation of lands, curing of fish and other provisions, distributing convicts for those and other purposes in such a manner, and under such regulations as may appear to you to be necessary, and best calculated for procuring supplies of grain and ground provisions, and for rendering their services most useful in the community." Unquote. And so on they continued, in great detail. He was to provide government tools and utensils at his discretion, but with economy, so as would assist in development, to arrange for imports of needed goods and livestock, to manage the convicts, and try and develop better relations with the natives. 
He was to ensure religious observance and good order, and constrain the importation of use of liquor. He was to grant land and provide some early support to emancipists and to settlers according to particular specifications. He should undertake further exploration and control communications with foreigners and especially prevent claims from other countries. He was to grant and control crown reservations as public land, lay out townships and building regulations, reserve church lands and ensure appropriate land taxes and fees were structured and paid. And there were a great many more instructions, including further letters which would arrive during his governorship. So then he just had to consider how to best implement these instructions in the most effective way, some of which would attract a resistance. Only then would the Home Office know if Bly was up to the job. And what kind of man was Bly really? Is our impression of him influenced by the evidence of appalling behaviour given by those who were on trial for the bounty mutiny? Or by the famous painting of him being dragged out from under a bed by the rum corps? <laughs> Maybe you're a Bly fan. It's worth a little reflection, though. Was he truly a violent, irrational bully, or just a cranky, potty-mouthed stickler for the rules, who had put influential people in the colony offside? So we'll try and get to know Bly a little more in the next episode. Next time we'll see how he was greeted, and how he began to undertake his orders to whip the colony into shape. He soon made local friends and enemies, and we'll look in particular at MacArthur, the corps officers, and other influential men in the community, as Bly began his new governorship. Now this time I have a great podcast recommendation for Australian history fans, one created by another Jennifer. Hi, my name is Jennifer Twemlow. If you like hearing stories from early Australian history, then you're going to love the Convict Australia podcast. Join me as I retell stories of convict pirates, shipwrecks, mutinies, riots, daring escapes, and much more. Plus, I interview some of the leading historians in the field and tell you all you need to know about researching your convict ancestors. Season 2 is out August 9th, so look up the Convict Australia podcast and click on the subscribe button so you never miss out on an episode. I'll place a link to the Convict Australia podcast landing page on mine at australianhistoriespodcast.com.au. Before I wrap up, I'll remind you that the podcast email address has changed. If you do want to get in touch, please use aushistpod at gmail.com. That's A-U-S-H-I-S-T-P-O-D at gmail.com. Thanks for joining me again this time. I look forward to the next episode reflecting on who Governor Bly was and how he coped on the good ship New South Wales with the haughty men of the Rum Corps. Have a safe and happy few weeks, won't you? And I'll talk to you again soon. Cheers. Cheers.